Thank you, brothers that have gone already this morning. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. And let's be reminded, as Paul and Peter were prone to remind their readers of the importance of brotherly love. It was suggested this week that because of the outpouring of love toward a particular brother, that I could take my wife to Hawaii. That was an act of love itself. Making such a suggestion, because to preach 1 Peter 1.22 might seem to be redundant. But it's not redundant because it's throughout the Word of God, it's throughout these epistles, it's five times in 1 Peter, every chapter refers to love. I am thankful that God in His grace and mercy toward this church have brought us a long way from 30 years ago and 34 years ago when our emphasis was on doctrine at the expense of love and charity. And I trust that before the Lord we have a great balance at this time. And we want to increase in our love and charity toward one another. I read to you just the 22nd verse. 1 Peter 1, 22. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. This is the word of the Lord. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Amen. Amen. Let me read it to you again. I want you to notice that it has two parts to this verse and that there was one fact already in existence based on the words, seeing that ye have, seeing ye have, and then there is an imperative instruction to continue in that thing in which they were already established. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Seeing that, or seeing, and then see that. There was something already in place, and that was their unfeigned love of the brethren, and they were to increase and press forward in that great culminating duty and grace of being a Christian. And we are thankful for the text. First Peter chapter 1, this is our last Sunday in this chapter. This chapter can be divided between verses 12 and 13, where the first 12 verses describe what God has done and what God will do for His people. Verse 13 takes up and applies that blessing of grace into what we ought to do toward Him. And so verse 13 begins with wherefore, and you can remember the sermons that we had from verse 13, that we need to gird up the loins of our minds. That means control our thinking and be mentally tough as Christians, to be sober, to hope to the end, to be obedient children in verse 14, not to fashion ourselves according to our former lusts and ignorance, 
to be holy, verses 15 and 16, to pass the time of our sojourning here in fear, verse 17, to remember what great price was paid for us in verses 18 and 19, and that that was all arranged before the foundation of the world, and that our faith in God is by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 21. And he comes to this new thought. Verse 21 ends with a period, and verse 22 begins a new thought of something that they should be able to look and recognize and see that they had achieved and had obtained, and that was unfeigned love of the brethren. And so this verse can be divided into two parts. One, the existence of their love toward each other in a sincere and honest way in the first half, and that was a result of hearing the truth of the gospel, obeying the truth of the gospel, by the Spirit's blessing and power to love of the brethren, and that they were to do it and continue doing it and to abound and increase in doing it. Otherwise, it's some redundant speech in verse 22, unless you can appreciate that the culmination of a Christian's life, the highest grace they can achieve, is love of the brethren. And once we get there, we don't stop, but we continue to press on that we might abound in this wonderful grace. When you love the brethren that sit around you in this multitude, and I'm using the word multitude from Psalm 42, when you love them the way the Bible describes loving them, and that doesn't mean your family. That means your brethren. When the Bible wants to tell you about loving your family, it knows how to say, love your wife, love your husband, love your children, honor your parents. We're talking about loving one another here where we do not have any genetic connection. We do not have any traditional connection. We do not have any family connection. Our connection is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to humble ourselves and to serve and to go after one another the way the Bible describes is the greatest evidence of grace in a person's life. Faith is the weakest of all evidences in a person's life. Believing the gospel is the weakest evidence of all taught anywhere in the Bible. When we are told about faith in 2 Peter chapter 1, we are then to add to our faith virtue. And to our virtue we are to add knowledge. And to knowledge, patience, and temperance, and godliness. But then the top two stones of those eight things in 2 Peter chapter 1 are brotherly kindness and charity. And remember, you had to get there by adding something to faith because it is just a foundation stone. And we add to that virtue and then to knowledge and patience and godliness, temperance, brotherly kindness and charity are the capstones of the Christian religion because they prove a greater work of grace in you than anything else because it overcomes selfishness. Men by nature are selfish. Men by nature are hateful. Men by nature are envious. Men by nature are slothful. Men by nature are proud. Men by nature hold vengeance. They hold bitterness. They're critical. And we could list and list adjectives and sins taught in the Bible, but love blows them all away. So many of those sins are the opposite of love. That when we show love to the brethren, we are showing such grace in our lives. And so here is the apostle working his way up to love, in 1 Peter 1.22, and then exhorting us 
imperatively to love one another with a pure heart fervently. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 is brotherly love. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17, love the brotherhood. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, finally be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren. 1 Peter 4, 8, and above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. And 1 Peter 5, 14, greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. The Apostle Paul four times directs his epistle readers to a kiss, but in all four cases it is salute one another with a holy kiss. When Peter does it here, it's a kiss of charity. So you can see love in the five chapters of First Peter. You can see words like above all, meaning this is the greatest grace. This one, this one reaches the deepest into our souls. It causes the most to come out of us that is godly and looks like our Father which is in heaven. Faith is something the devils are full of. But they don't have love and charity. And this is a wonderful text of Scripture. And I hope that you will enjoy it and bask in it and be convicted by it and want to fulfill it in your life as we finish out 1 Peter 1. The first word, seeing, is a quasi-conjunction. It means considering the fact that, seeing, considering the fact that ye have purified your souls. It means because. It means since. Since ye have purified your souls. Because ye have purified your souls. He then moves on to an imperative verb, meaning something we are to do. See that ye love one another. Since they had advanced as far as brotherly love in their Christian growth, they should press ahead in that great grace. We never want to be content with brotherly love. So I'm not in Hawaii, though I appreciated the email. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and I want you to see our brother Paul's pressing on this subject. Love is the greatest character trait of a Christian. Love is the greatest evidence of God's great, of God's grace in your life. It is the greatest measure of a child of God. It is the greatest concept in the Bible. It is a wonderful thing, and I want you to rejoice in it and see how many times it is mentioned throughout the pages of Scripture. I hope just showing you that it's in all five chapters of 1 Peter show you that this is one important theme of the Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. Brotherly love is one-on-one service and kindness and help. It is a one-another duty taught in the Bible. It is what one person does to one other person. And then since there are a number of members around you, you do it to another person 
and another person until you have done it to the whole multitude. One another duties. The Lord make you to increase and abound in love. Notice, to increase and to abound in this grace. In love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do towards you. To the end. Here's the accomplishment when you learn to love the brethren one at a time. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. If you want to be ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is one grace that you ought to be emphasizing above the others, and it's love of the brethren. One-on-one love has as its end holiness to be ready for Jesus Christ's appearing. Chapter 4. Chapter 4 describes sanctification and holiness. And look at verse 9 of chapter 4. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. As touching brotherly love, ye need not that I preach 1 Peter 1.22 unto you. But I could go to Hawaii because you are a loving church. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. Well then, Paul, why are you writing unto them? But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Remember, through the Spirit in 1 Peter 1.22? Through the Spirit. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia, But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. That is why I'm preaching 1 Peter 1.22, and I'm not out in the middle of the Pacific somewhere. Because we want to increase in this more and more. If this, if the end of brotherly love is real holiness, if the end of brotherly love is really being prepared to meet the Lord Jesus Christ and His coming, then we want to emphasize it. If brotherly love is how a church edifies itself and makes increase of itself in love up to the full measure of the stature of Christ, we want this verse, 1 Peter 1.22. Hebrews chapter 13, and uh, Hebrews 13 and verse 1 is only four words long. Let brotherly love continue. This is the great grace. Brotherly love. A sacrificial desire, concern, and effort to help another person maximize their life in the sight of God and men. What is love? What is brotherly love? What is this thing called love? It's not fuzzy-wuzzy feelings. It is action toward another person. The feelings will come with the investment you make. Love is a choice. The Bible says in Colossians 3, 2, set your affections above. Speaking about the love of God and the love of spiritual things, you set your affections. We don't sit around and wait for love to happen. That is lust. When you sit around and wait for feelings, that is lust. Love is a choice. It is a choice for husbands to love their wives. It is a choice for wives to love their husbands. Love. Brotherly love. 
the sacrificial, selfless, concern, desire, and effort, action to help another person maximize their life in the sight of God and men. That's what we want to do for each other. That's what we want to do toward each other. And back in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, the Apostle Peter writes this audience of his there in what we would call today modern Turkey and says that seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. They had done it. Seeing ye have purified your souls. There is a purification of your soul that depends and rests upon you under God's blessing. This is not justification. This is practical sanctification. Justification is in the sight of God a legal term, meaning that when God looks at you or He looks at me, it is just as if we had never sinned and just as if we had lived Jesus Christ's perfect life. For God made Him to be sin for us. Our sins were legally put on Jesus Christ. His righteousness was legally put on us. It's the two sides of the coin of justification, but that is not taught in 1 Peter 1.22. In 1 Peter 1.22, it's a purification that you have done by obeying the truth through the Spirit. You purify yourself when you hear the truth of God and humble yourself to it and believe it and change your way of thinking, speaking, and living. Lord, help us to do that. We understand soul here to be the internal apparatus that motivates and directs a person. It's everything on your inside. You have purified your souls. Paul tells these believers in Asia Minor, you've purified your souls in obeying the truth. This purification is our practical sanctification. Sanctification means to make something holy. It's our practical holiness. We hear the truth. It tells us about God, His standard of righteousness and human conduct. We hear it, we humble ourselves to it, and we do it. We obey the truth. We don't just hear the truth. We don't just believe the truth. We obey the truth. And it causes us to purify our inner parts Because we're told how we ought to think and view others. We hear a new definition of love. A sacrificial, selfless, concern, desire, and effort toward another person to help them maximize their life in the sight of God and men. That is not what we think ordinarily. I can't tell you what you think ordinarily about love because such language is not appropriate to come out of a pulpit. Because what you think about love is lust. It's what you can get out of another person. It's what pleasure you have with another person. But that isn't love in the Bible. Love in the Bible is the profit that you can give another person. And for those who have tried it, and for those who believe the Word of God, they find their greatest pleasure in the profit that they bring another person. Those who just go looking for pleasure for themselves in relationships end up bankrupt. They are the loneliest, most miserable people on the planet because they have gone looking for love, only found lust, and then consumed it upon their own lusts 
And they have nothing of the glory of a relationship that God designed that is based on the profit of another person. True love. Real love. And so it says, seeing ye have purified your souls. This purification is a wonderful thing. And the Bible describes it in so many places. Are you familiar with these words? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We hear the truth. We renew our minds. I am not going to think that old way anymore. I am going to go into my glossary, my mental glossary. I'm going to scratch through how I defined love, and I'm going to redefine it the Bible way. And we renew our minds. And then by renewing our minds from the inside out, we prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We hear it in the truth of the gospel. We humble ourselves to it and obey it. And we purify ourselves by purging away the foolish, ignorant thoughts that the world has taught us and our flesh has taught us. And we embrace and believe and do the things God has taught us. Loving your sister, Abigail, it's dangerous to sit in the front row. You might want to see the wise master planner about seating after today. But for you to love your sister Lydia down there at the other end of your row, that means you are doing things for her to help her be the best Lydia that she can be. It's not doing something with Lydia for you to have pleasure. It's doing something with Lydia for her profit. And the more you learn to think that way, the more pleasure you get out of it anyway. Because the Lord's way is always win-win. And it's a wonderful way to live. And these people were living that way. And the Apostle Peter was exhorting them to continue living that way and to put their might and to continue in it and to abound in it and to increase in it yet more and more, as the Apostle Paul would say, seeing ye have purified your souls. He that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. First John 3, 3. When we hear the truth of what God has done for us, who God is, how great He is, that we shall give an account of our lives to Him, that He has great things held in store for us, and we believe those things, it should change our lives. If it doesn't change your life, it's because you're probably not born again, and you're on your way to hell. So pull out a hymnal, and thumb through the pages of the songs, instead of listening to God's Word. The evidence of a child of God, The evidence of someone who is born again is that they recognize the great glory and majesty of God that we heard from Psalm 29. They appreciate the fact that God sent Jesus Christ and gifts for the church to build up the church that we heard from Ephesians chapter 4. They appreciate this text of Scripture knowing that it comes from the finger of God and they want to change because they have inside them a seed that cannot sin. Because it wants to obey God. And so, they purify their souls in obeying the truth. There are so many verses that could be read. 
Look at James chapter 4, since it is so close at hand. James chapter 4 and verse 8. I ask you today, have you purified your soul? Have you changed your way of thinking by flushing the way that the world thinks and the way that you think by nature to embrace the way that God wants you to think? Have you renewed your mind? Have you purified your soul? I ask you today because that's what God is asking you. It's what God is asking me. James chapter 4 and verse 8, Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. Now that is a simple sentence. How can I get close to God? There aren't any secrets. It's easy. Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. Well, how do I do it? Keep reading. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. You say, that's not very nice language for a person to use. That's not very nice language for a preacher to use from the pulpit. This is James by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Confess your sins of everything you're doing in your life that is wrong. And purify your hearts, ye double-minded. See, purify your hearts means get rid of every impurity that is the world's way of thinking to leave just how God wants you to think. Purify your hearts. Lord, forgive me that thought. Lord, forgive me that thought. And Lord, forgive me those thoughts. And to think His thoughts. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Let's keep reading so that you can know how to draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. That's a promise. Do you want to be close to God? Do you want to be as close to God as Abraham was and be the friend of God? It's pretty simple. It's James 4, 8-10. through 10. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He shall lift you up. That ninth verse tells you that today isn't the time to go out and play games. It's the time to go out and be afflicted and mourn and weep because you haven't been close to God. And if God sees that kind of sincerity, that you are afflicting yourself and you're mourning and you're weeping, if you let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness, if you get rid of the games and distractions in your life, no matter how noble you think they are, to pursue the one relationship that counts, God will draw nigh to you. This is the word of the Lord. This is how we purify our hearts and we cleanse our hands in the process of drawing nigh to God. Back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. Many other scriptures could be mentioned. The purification here by its logical and grammatical connection is ultimately the brother, love of the brethren. Because how do we think about each other naturally. Titus chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, including himself and Titus, another minister, puts it this way. Here is how we think about each other naturally. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's what we are by nature. And so we purify our hearts by getting rid of all those things. You just go into the list, and when it says living in envy, 
Envy means to be jealous and to resent the advantage or accomplishments of another person. We have had some blessings this week in our church. Do you get as excited or more excited for it happening to another person than for it even happening to you? Is that impossible for you to even understand? Do you get so jacked up about hearing God's blessing toward another person that it's better that it happened to them than it did to you? That's the opposite of envy. You're grateful and excited and thankful that some blessing has happened to another. And this is how we purify our souls by going into a place like Titus 3.3 and getting rid of all those negative things like malice. What? Who do you have malicious thoughts toward? If you have malicious thoughts toward anyone, you are wrong. And you are not ready to meet the Lord Jesus Christ and He will tear you asunder when you meet Him. You will give an account for every one of those malicious thoughts. Get rid of malice. Let all your thoughts be good, kind, benevolent, Pray for those that despitefully use you. Love your enemies. God does. God sends His rain and sunshine on both. Sunshine is such a warm embrace from heaven upon the wicked. But He does it. And so we should learn those things. Back to 1 Peter 1.22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth. It's not enough to hear the truth. We've got to obey it. It's not enough to believe the truth. We've got to obey it. The devils believe the truth. Others hear the truth, but they're not doers of the Word. So James chapter 1 just crushes them for being hearers of the Word, hearers only, and not doers of the Word. What you hear today, what I'm preaching today, that I'm hearing myself today, we must do it. We can't just hear it. We can't just believe it. We can't just profess it. We've got to do it. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 2.4 The devils believe and tremble. James 2.19 Oh, brethren, we want to obey the truth. And the truth comes to us as it did in the first 21 verses of this chapter. The truth came to us and said, But God according to His abundant mercy, hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. To hear those words and then to believe those words and then to obey based on those words is to have a changed life. It's to purify your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Oh Lord, help us to obey the truth. We should be so thankful for the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. And it goes on and on, describing all the benefits of taking in the Word of God and obeying it. Oh Lord, help us to do that. Obeying the truth. What truth has been presented from verse 13? Girding up the loins of your mind, not fashioning yourselves according to your former lusts in ignorance, being holy because God is holy, passing the time of your sojourning here in fear. Those things we hear, we believe, and we obey them. 
We make a choice to change our lives and we purify ourselves by letting the Word of God have free course and be glorified in us. And God by His Spirit will bless His Word to accomplish that end when men humble themselves before Him. Through the Spirit, it says, in the middle of verse 22, you cannot and will not obey truth without God having regenerated you first and then continuing to help you by His Holy Spirit. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. We need the Spirit's help. Ability, desire, and effort is by the Spirit. Even with regeneration in place, the Apostle Paul would still pray for God the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of their understanding. The Ephesian saints I'm referring to. You know the book of Ephesians. Chapter 2 starts off with, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 describes their past regeneration. However, in Ephesians chapter 1, he prayed that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, would open the eyes of their understanding that they might understand certain things. And then he tells them, don't you grieve that Holy Spirit of God, 4.30. And then in chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, he says, I pray unto God that He might reveal to you the full dimensions of Christ's love and that you might be strengthened with all might in your inner man. These are ongoing operations of the Holy Spirit that follow regeneration. Regeneration just puts a life and a seed inside us. But then, through the power of that Spirit and our humility and obedience to the Word of God, we are able to purify our lives. God working with us. God working with the ministry. God working with His Word, changing our lives. Lord, help us to that end. Help us to change our lives, to match up with Your precious Word. The Bible says that even if you're born again and you're sitting in the privacy of your home with your Bible, you should still be praying because without the Lord's help, it's going to be a vain effort. Psalm 119 and verse 18 says, Lord, open Thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of Thy law. We still need God's blessing every day of our lives to accomplish anything that we should. Lord, help us to that. And so it says, through the Spirit, there is so much jam-packed into this 22nd verse. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Seeing. This was something they had done. You have purified your souls. You have gotten rid of the conflicting desires and ambitions. You're no longer double-minded or double-hearted. You have one ambition, that is to please God. You have chosen to do that with your life instead of being a wasted life like the vast majority of mankind and the majority of most Christians. They live for themselves rather than living for Him who loved them and gave Himself for them. They purified their souls in obeying the truth. The truth, let's be thankful for the truth. We have the truth. We have the truth about the universe. We have the truth about God. We have the truth about ourselves. We have the truth about relationships. We have the truth about success and prosperity. We have the truth about the future. We have the truth about everything. And we obey the truth. 
And by obeying the truth through the Spirit, enabling us to do so, and encouraging us to do so, and helping us to do so, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me, we purify our souls. We purge away the bad stuff. We embrace the new. We live a different kind of a life. And so it is said of them, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. And here's the highest capstone of accomplishment. Unto prayer? No. Anybody can pray. Unto faith? Unto martyrdom, unto speaking in tongues, unto having all knowledge and all understanding all mysteries, unto giving all my goods to feed the poor. You say, that sounds like brotherly love. No, it isn't. That's UNICEF. That's United Way. You're still missing the boat. Unto unfeigned love of the brethren. How many people like to write big checks? Because it's easy to write a big check. It's much easier to write a big check than to get down and condescend to men of low estate and show your interest in them and your desire for their personal, professional, spiritual, and altogether success. Very different. Very different. The Lord, oh, let me tell you something about the Lord that we deal with. He knows the difference. If you can't figure out the difference, you've got a problem in understanding. He's got it figured out. That's why Paul said, if I give all my goods to feed the poor and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. You're thinking to yourself, but giving all your goods to feed the poor, that is charity. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Charity suffereth long. Usually, men that can write big checks have zero charity. Although they get their names at the top of the United Way donators, they don't have charity because they don't have the humility, nor the interest, nor the ambition, nor the desire, nor the true affection to get down to men of low estate and to help them on an individual personal basis because that is charity. Then when you get down with that person, they bite you like a dog. You know, they bite you. But charity suffereth long. And is kind. It is totally different from giving stuff away. It's too easy to write a check and God knows it. Seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Unfeigned means there's no hypocrisy. There's no pretensions. It's not in word only. It is in deed and in truth. It is true, sacrificial, selfless care, desire, and effort for another person to maximize their life in the sight of God and men. I hope that you understand that. Let's, uh, let's just go ahead and do it right now. 1 Corinthians 13. Let's remind ourselves what real love and charity is. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Oh, it would be so much easier if we could just write a check. Oh, it would be so much easier. Then there's no emotion required. Then there's no time required. Then there's no interruption to your schedule. Then there's no humility necessary. Then you don't have to be bit by someone that you're trying to help. 
And on and on it goes. God has defined charity very, very carefully for us. And Paul has shown in 1 Corinthians 13, in the first three verses, that no matter what spiritual gifts you had of 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 a supernatural nature, no matter what spiritual gifts you had of a revelatory nature, that you understood all divine mysteries, no matter that you would suffer martyrdom and give all your goods to feed the poor, if you don't have what's coming next, it's all worthless. These are not my extreme statements. These are God's extreme statements. They continue to blow me away at the age of 57. What I'm about to read to you is the greatest single sentence defining love ever conceived and used in the universe. And God's given it to us in the Bible about our love toward one another. You know, the greatest love in the Bible is God's love toward us that He sent His Son. But look at this sentence that runs from verse 4 to verse 7. It has 15 phrases about love called charity here. Charity suffereth long. That means when you love someone, you will put up with them offending and hurting you. Because if you love someone, they're more important than you are, so it doesn't matter that they hurt you. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity looks to see what nice things it can do for another person. Charity envieth not. It never resents the advantage or possessions of another person or their superiority, or the praise they get in public or anywhere else. Charity does not envy. Charity vaunteth not itself, does not think highly of itself, is not, does not put itself forward as being more important than others, is not puffed up, not even on the inside. Now we're through five phrases about love. This is how you love your husband. This is how you love your wife. This is how you love your brother. This is how you love anyone. You practice these 15 phrases of one sentence in the English language from 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. And if you don't do this one sentence in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, it doesn't matter if you have verses 1, 2, and 3, all three true in your life. This is what counts right here. This is the word of the Lord to us. Verse 5, doth not behave itself unseemly. Charity always does what is right, appropriate, and courteous toward everyone else by their definition, never by your definition. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. When you love someone, you are never looking out for yourself. Robert Ringer wrote a book, popular in business circles in this country 30 years ago, looking out for number one. The Bible tells us that true joy is Jesus, then others, then you, your last. Charity, true love, does not seek her own. You are never looking for what you can get. You're looking for what you can give for others. That is why the last question to join this church is, do you understand that joining this church and coming to this church is where you come to love and serve, not to be loved and served. Because it doesn't seek its own. It's not easily provoked. Others can offend you and hurt you, and it doesn't bother you. It's water off a duck's back because you're not easily provoked. People that quickly respond in anger 
that are quickly provoked or hurt by other people offending them, they don't have love. They don't have charity. Thinketh no evil. It never puts an evil construction on another person's actions. It never puts an evil construction on another person's life. It doesn't think evil about another person. Thinketh no evil. If you love someone, you're always going to put their life and their actions, whether you know about it or not, in the best possible construction. You're never going to put it in the worst possible construction. This is the word of the Lord to us. This is 1 Peter 1.22. Unto unfeigned love of the brethren. This is real love of the brethren. Thinketh no evil. We don't even think that they might have done something bad or wrong. We don't even think it. Thinketh. No evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity. When a person gets caught doing something wrong, we never rejoice in it. It grieves us that it happened. Do you know that tendency inside of us when someone else gets caught doing something wrong? We tend to gloat about it because it makes us look better than them because for the particular moment that we're talking about and the particular sin that we're talking about, they may have got caught and you haven't got caught yet, but you gloat about them getting caught while you didn't get caught. But it says, rejoiceth not in iniquity. This is love. This is brotherly love. This is what makes a church great in the sight of God and men. This would lead us all to heaven and make us fit and prepared to see the Lord Jesus Christ at His coming if we could show all these things toward one another. The last half of verse 6, but rejoiceth in the truth. Oh, we are thankful and we are full of praise and we are filled with wonder and good feelings when we see the object of our affection walking in the truth and doing what is right. It's the opposite of the first half where our flesh wants to get excited and gloat about someone getting caught in sin. Verse 7, beareth all things. No matter what someone does to us, no matter how hard they are to help, no matter how slow they are in picking up on things, no matter how slow they are in learning to do what is right, beareth all things, believeth all things. If they say something, if they say they're sorry, we believe it. If they say they're sorry and it's hard to believe it, we hope it. Because it says, hopeth all things, endureth all things. No matter what someone else does, we stay. We're loyal. We don't sing, stand by your man, but that's what we mean for women. That's what we mean for men. That's what we mean for church members. There's 15 phrases, brethren. That's it. That's all you got to do. One sentence. That's brotherly love right there. That is the selfless, sacrificial, concern, desire, and effort to help another person maximize their life in the sight of God and men. As they prosper... You don't envy, you rejoice. The more they walk in the truth, even if they outstrip you in the truth, you rejoice. When they get caught, you grieve. And you go help them back on into the path of righteousness. Let's come back to First Peter 1.22. This is unfeigned love of the brethren. Unfeigned means it's not pretended. It's sincere, it's genuine, it's true, it's real. When we think of the change that is wrought in us by regeneration and truth, brotherly love is at the top. And let's keep it there. Right. After a foundation, in verse 13, of girding up the loins of your mind, and sobriety in verse 13, and hope in verse 13, and forming your life 
as an obedient child in verse 14 and living a holy life in verses 15 and 16 and passing the time of your sojourning in fear in verse 17. He's building up. You know, he started with faith in verse 6 of this chapter. He's building up and he's building up unto, unto the highest we can achieve. The greatest of these is charity. Yet show I unto you a more excellent way. I'm not going to turn you back to 1 Corinthians 13 again. I've been there so many times. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 28, it begins listing the gifts of the church in order of rank, from highest to lowest. Tongues is the lowest. It's always the lowest. That's why charismatics make it the greatest. Because they've got the Bible upside down in their minds. The first gift is apostle, then prophet, then then teacher, then miracles, then healings. And those gifts, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12.31, after listing those gifts, says, covet, I thought we weren't supposed to covet, covet earnestly the best gifts. Desire those best gifts. Desire to be an apostle if possible. Desire to be a prophet if possible, he writes the Corinthians. But then he says these words, yet show I unto you a more excellent way. There is a more excellent way of serving God than being an apostle. There is a more excellent way of serving God than being a prophet. There is a more excellent way of serving God than being a teacher, than having the gift of miracles or the gift of healing. And what is it? It's chapter 13. Brotherly love. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Is that exciting? Every woman in here can be greater than an apostle. Every child in here can be greater than an apostle. You can serve God in a more acceptable way than being an apostle and having all understanding, speaking in the tongues of men and of angels, giving all your goods to feed the poor, and giving your body to be burned. You can be greater by practicing those 15 phrases in 1 Corinthians 13. This is what can make our church very pleasing in God's sight. And all of us can increase and edify this body by itself in love to the full measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. First Peter 1.22 Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Oh, the Bible. The Bible is so plain about love. No one else knows about love. When Whitney Houston sang about love, what love was she talking about? The greatest love of all, Whitney Houston. Self-love. Flat out condemned in the Bible. That is pure selfish wickedness to love yourself. You already love yourself too much, which is why Jesus said that you need to learn to love your neighbor as yourself because that's the highest standard you know is how much you love yourself. The first trait of the perilous times of the last days in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5, through is men shall be lovers of their own selves. Those are perilous times when self-love is taught. Oh Lord, help us to understand. When Elton John writes about love, what's he writing about? Don't answer that one. When Elton John writes a song about Daniel, is he talking about the the prophet of God of Israel? Oh, no. 
Let's just leave that one alone. They don't understand what love is. The Bible knows all about love. Listen to this. Marital lovemaking. You mean sex? Yes. Marital lovemaking. Said to be honorable in the Bible in Hebrews 13.4. But it is below this level of brotherly love that we're talking about. And yet, when it talks about marital lovemaking in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and the first five verses, it calls it due benevolence. Let the husband see that he rendered to the wife due benevolence. Because lovemaking is not for you getting pleasure, it's for you giving pleasure. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. The husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. The husband's body is not for his pleasure, but for his wife's pleasure, and vice versa. Notice how the Bible defines everything pertaining to love and how it does it. It's always on the giving end, not on the getting end. And the more you can figure that out and be on the giving end, the more you're going to get in more ways than one. And I wasn't trying to be funny. I love, I love the Bible. Amen. When it talks about marital lovemaking, it calls it due benevolence. Benevolence is goodwill toward another person. You are, a, you are benevolent toward them. You are giving to them to help them maximize their lovemaking pleasure in marriage. You say, I do that. I'm quite the lover. Hold on. I- I'm listening to you. I've heard this one before. I've said this one before. I'm quite the lover. I always put my wife first. You're a pretty good guy, aren't you? There's just a little problem. It's a three-letter word called do. It's do benevolence. You haven't done anything except fulfill your duty. Quit talking about yourself. It's what you already owe her. The whole reason I went off on that little rabbit trail is to point out that even in something like marital lovemaking, the emphasis is very clearly on the other party for their good, their profit, their pleasure, not yours. But if you ever figure it out, you will find out that the greatest pleasure comes from another person's pleasure, not your own. You say, that's impossible. That's because you've never tried it. I love the Word of God. I don't care where you turn in the Word of God, it's going to come up the same way about love. God gave His only begotten Son for us, and we give of ourselves for others, and it comes back to us. If you'll lose your life for Christ's sake, you'll find it. If you try to save your life for your sake, you're going to lose it. God guarantees it. If you try to save your life, if I do things the way the pastor's preaching today, my life will be so boring, then go ahead and try to save your life. My Savior, Jesus Christ, is guaranteed that you will lose your life and He will reduce you to a frustrated, sore-scraping loser in this world. If you want to find your life and be full of happiness and joy and success and prosperity by any measure then lose your life for Christ's sake, which means to purify yourself and do things His way. See that. Now we come to the second half of the verse. See that you love one another. Notice that it says you love one another. So right here in our text, 
it tells us it's a one another duty. A one another duty, one on one. When was the last time you did something on a one on one basis for someone else in the church? When was the last time you did something on a one on one basis in the church for someone below you? Below you in economics, below you in intelligence, below you in age. Who have you stooped down to recently and condescended to men of low estate to help them? Because it says, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Because this is what it means. You know that I love the little combination in the Bible called one another. It's a reciprocal pronoun. It's, it's, a, it's a neat and creative little device. One another. You can't just sit there and say, I do love the brethren. That isn't good enough. You have to reach out and do something for them on a one-by-one basis. Oh, there are a lot of combinations and permutations in this congregation. It's up around 30,000. See, we do have a a megachurch. When you take 160 souls and you break them up into pairs of two, you get a huge number of around 15,000. But when you look at that relationship going in both directions, the one party is loving the other, the other party is loving back, and so that you have two parts to that combination, then it's a permutation. It's about 30,000. There's just a lot of those. Because it says, See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. When it says with a pure heart fervently, there's two issues at stake. One, with a pure heart. You are sincere. You are honest. And you are genuine. There is not a conflict of emotions. With a pure heart. It goes back to that word unfeigned. You say, why Why does Peter say that they were loving with unfeigned love of the brethren? Then he tells them to do it. Because that is how the Bible teaches about love throughout. It's the highest achievement for us in grace. And it's yet something that we want to continue in and increase in yet more and more. And so when it says love with a pure heart fervently, there's two issues. The pure heart is you have honest, sincere, genuine, godly motives. You're honest and sincere about it. It means to be without dissimulation. In Romans 12, 9, it says, let your love be without dissimulation. That's hypocrisy. That's just putting on a show. That's going through the motions. We want to have it in our bowels, which brings us to the next point. With a pure heart, fervently. Fervently means to be passionate about it. You say, I just don't know how to get passionate. I've noticed. It's a choice to get passionate. It's a choice to have your bowels affected. You say, what do you mean bowels? Well, the Bible describes that inner part of our body where your bowels are. Have you ever heard or used the expression, my stomach turned upside down? You absolutely do know about bowels. You can be so interested in another person's well-being that you'll be affected in the middle part of your body. And so it's used metaphorically referring to your bowels. And so the Bible says over and over, put on the bowels of compassion. Put on the bowels of affection. Because it's a choice. The Apostle Paul would say to the Corinthians, my heart, our heart, is enlarged. And he wasn't speaking of a medical condition. He was speaking of a great deal of love. Our heart is enlarged towards you, Corinthians. 
Why are you straightened toward us? That means restricted. Be ye also enlarged. It's a choice to enlarge your affection towards someone. When you make the choice, then make an investment in that person. Go do something for that person. Go do something else for that person. If you have made the choice that you want to be passionate and fervent, as this last word of verse 22 means, and then you go do something for that person, those feelings and that passion will rise in you. It's it's because we're taught the American way about love. We sit around and wait for it to happen to us. That isn't love. That's lust. If you choose to love someone, I want to serve this church and help each member maximize their life by every measure of a life according to God's Word, and then you invest toward that, the feelings toward them will come. And so we have 1 Peter 1.22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Keep on doing what you have been doing. What has this church been doing? They have been practicing that love is the greatest. And brethren, we can be greater at practicing the greatest grace of love. Love is the greatest duty. In the Bible, Jesus said the entire Bible hangs on two commandments. The love of God and the love of neighbor. It is called the royal law. It is the greatest grace because it changes us so much from what we are by nature. It is the greatest evidence. I preached a whole number of sermons on the assurance of eternal life. Do you remember the amount of time we spent in 1 John 3 and 4? Because it's the greatest evidence of eternal life. God is love. And if a man loves his brother, it shows that God dwells in him and he in God. And he has everlasting life and he's been born of God. Love is the greatest. It's the greatest measure. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those that serve. Jesus told his apostles. They were arguing about who was going to be the greatest when Jesus left. And he said, the greatest among you will be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Love is the greatest means of building up a church, as I showed you already from Ephesians 4. Love is the greatest source of God's blessing in your life because 1 Peter 3, 8-12 through is going to teach us that if a man wants to have a happy life, it starts out by love. 1 Peter 3, 8-12 through is going to teach us that. Love is the greatest concept. And I showed you that from 1 Corinthians 13 and that one sentence from verses 4 through 7. Love is the greatest work because it's more than a thought or a word. It's an action toward another person. We are to love in deed and in truth, not in word only. And love is the greatest challenge because you are going to be offended and others are going to sin against you. Are you great enough in love? Love covers a multitude of sins. Are you going to be able to do that? It's a great challenge. I'm thankful to be a part of a church that built a bridge that could take an M1 Abrams on it, in my opinion. I'm thankful for a young man that sits on the front row on the right-hand side 
that takes out the trash every single Lord's Day, whether it's rain or shine, and recovers those trash containers on Wednesday. I'm thankful for all the hospitality that is shown by those that are hospitable. I'm thankful for all the forgiveness that is shown by those who love to forgive and overlook offenses. I'm thankful for those who love mercy. I'm thankful for a chauffeur, for a student from Clemson. I'm thankful for food for families when they have births in their, or they're sick or infirmed. I'm thankful for audio-video productions being done every week. I'm thankful for gifts of Bibles and one-year Bibles and things like that given throughout the congregation. I'm thankful for those that are great listeners. I'm thankful for all the moving help when families want to move. I'm thankful for 24-hour round trips to northern Pennsylvania and to Florida to bring families to us. I'm thankful for wood splitting by those who don't have a wood-burning fireplace. I'm thankful for those that lodge strangers. I'm thankful for the showers, for weddings and births. Even though there was going to be a significant gift given, the amount given at some of our showers is wonderful. I'm thankful that grass gets cut when people go on vacation by others. I'm thankful for trips to physical therapy and waiting in cars and waiting rooms while physical therapy takes place. I'm thankful for babysitting that is traded back and forth in the church. I'm thankful for prayer that is offered up one for another. I'm thankful for career counseling to help our young men advance their careers. I'm thankful for devotions that take place as families come together and prepare on Saturday nights. I'm thankful for those that have a job with a nice company helping others get jobs at that company until we have some companies with a number of people employed there. I'm thankful for financial loans that are made among members. I'm thankful for cars that are loaned. And we could go on. And we could go on. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Amen. Amen.